What gives you great confidence in what you believe to be true? Think of what gives you great confidence in what you believe to be very true. All of us, in many ways, hold on to something that enables or encourages our trust in something. Maybe you get in a car and you put on a seatbelt. In many ways, that, that draws your attention uh, to the confidence that you can have in that vehicle. What we see here in our passage this morning is that God, very uniquely, but very carefully and very understandably, gives us an understanding that He is always a God who fulfills His Word to the point where you and I should believe God's Word. Now, the church has long been captivated by Luke's telling of the Christmas story. It's where most of our songs come from. It's where most of our narrative of the Christmas story comes from. The church has long been captivated by Luke's telling of the Christmas story. Of all the Gospels, it's actually Luke who gets the most play in church around Christmas. And I have an imaginative thought of what it'll be like when, when we finally arrive in heaven and we see the different authors of the different scriptural books. And you might go up to some of them and you go up to Luke and you say, you know, Brother Luke, Saint Luke, Friend Luke, Luke the Evangelist, I love what you did at Christmas. I love how you helped us understand Christmas even more. That angelic announcement to Mary, so good, so good. The announcement to those poor shepherds in the field where they lay, what a place. I would love to, love to see it someday. Luke puts prominence, and what gave you prominence to, to have this unfold like nothing before it? Thank you. And, you know, Luke might look at you, and I, I doubt this will ever happen, but Luke might look at you, and he'll say thanks, and he'll stroll away, and he'll go, that's actually not how I told the story of Christmas altogether. That's part of it, but it's not the whole thing. Luke's account in his gospel has some surprising things concerning how you and I are to view Christmas, to really understand the majesty of the king who came and would be lifted up. So I want, I want you to see three of these surprises in the narrative from verses 5 through 25 of, of chapter 1. It's an amazing thing to see these unfold in what seems to be surprising ways. And the first surprise is this. It's the actual place that God first goes to make his return known. That surprising place that God goes to make his return known. Take a look at our text. Look at the text, verses 8 through 11. I'll read those for you. Verses 8 through 11. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside the house of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Now look at verse 17. And he will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the, un, of, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 17 tells us that this one who will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, and some people believe that Luke's account of Christmas begins on a hillside or of Bethlehem or on the night when the angel of hosts appeared to overwhelm the night sky and the poor shepherds in the field. But amazingly, if you just read this account, like I just read, you recognize that that is not where Luke starts his recounting of Christmas. This really messes up our Advent calendars, doesn't it? I doubt there are many of you who have gone through Christmas series or maybe your own Christmas books that begin where Luke actually begins his gospel of Jesus. 
You see, God did not first manifest his returning glory in some unknown backwater place or to some simple woman of obscurity. The God of the Bible, the God of Moses, of David, of Solomon, of Ezekiel, the God of the skirted tent, the solid temple, he announces a return to the affairs of his promises after 400 years of absence in a chosen place of old. And it's a surprise. He would come to the kingly city of Jerusalem, to the site of a great temple, and there he would make his intentions known to his people. All of this begins in Jerusalem. Now the Gospel of Luke actually will end there. And just an aside, if you want to flip over to the very end of the Gospel of Luke, you go to Luke chapter 24, there in verse 51. It says, while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up to heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. See this strategy of trying to understand the text. It's called the top and tail where, where the book begins in a certain place and then ends in a certain place. And is there any sanity to that? Here we see God intervening, intervening in his world again in a temple. And then at the end of this book... God will leave, but they will worship him in the temple. He would come to this kingly place in this kingly city, and it would be a joy. The joy began in Jerusalem, and the joy would continue in Jerusalem in this place. So the voice of God come Christmas is first heard in the temple. The birth is what Luke brings forth as a reason for his rejoicing. And there's a reason for rejoicing, and the angel will go so far as to equate this news concerning the birth of John as what, does the text say? Actually, the good news for us and for his people. Take a look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. This good news, the good news, very often we do not equate with the arrival of John the Baptist, announced in a temple to a priest married to a barren woman. Now, the significance of this beginning in Luke is actually for at the very beginning of the chapter, it's for this man named uh, Theophilus, who was the first reader of this book. You can imagine Luke scribing this thing out, giving it to this brother in the Lord, so that this brother could have confidence in the very thing that he says he believes in must have been comforting, to say the least. But look up at, at the first four verses of the chapter, where the appearance in the temple is consistent with the idea that of the faith that Theophilus would be given is consistent with the faith that he had been taught. Look at, look at, chapter, or look at chapter 1, verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Now, this word certainty is actually where you and I get our word asphalt from. I don't know if you've ever ridden uh, road in a car on a gravel road, a little uncertain. Maybe even a dirt road, a little less certain. Maybe even for some of you on a sandy road, you know, maybe near the Cimarron River, very uncertain. But imagine the first time you would go on an asphalt-laid road. Oh man, you could fly down that thing because you can trust the confidence of what's been given to you. Luke wants to give this man, his brother, confidence in what he believes. And he does so by showing that this person would arrive and that announcement would come from a temple. The goal of Luke was to give certainty to those who had been taught about Christ Jesus. He'd, he'd been taught a faith that was consistent, even in verse 1, a narrative of things that had been accomplished among us, that, 
that he was reading, that all that he was reading was connected to the God of Israel into all of the scriptures. And there ought to be a coherence and consistency regarding how God would work in his people. And I hope you see that, that this kind of out of nowhere word would come from a very familiar place. So the fact that Luke begins in the temple is for Theophilus, by the way of fulfillment, an incredible comfort. Now, write this down, take this home, hammer it in next to your stockings. In part, the emphasis and the message of this part of Luke's gospel is to tell us that God works in ways that are consistent with the full record of his manifestation to his people. God works in ways that are completely consistent with the full record of his manifestation to his people. He is just not randomly showing up. Or let me put it this way, at the risk of being an overstatement, Luke's desire for his reader's certainty in the faith, meaning your faith, does not rest on some fanciful tale initially of an appearance of an angel to a young virgin in the outskirts and to the shepherd in the fields. It will arrive like that, but it needs to be firmly grounded in the fulfillment of all of his scriptures. It almost sounds absolutely fanciful, but there is no apparent connection to those with all that has gone before. Luke rests the certainty of the faith upon the activity of God as consistent with all the things that he had been taught. You and I will be tempted to do the opposite of this, where we just think that everything is out of control and we hope that God will just do something that seems so otherly than what he has done before. Instead of recognizing that the God of old is the God of now and is the God of the future, and we need to put our trust in him, in accordance to all of his ways, as it has providentially come to us. Now, let me put it like this. When Moses had finished setting up the skirted temple, where did the glory of the Lord go? On to the tabernacle. And when Solomon finally built the temple, where did the glory of the Lord go? Where'd he go? Where would God go to communicate? Where does God go to speak and be with his people? He goes to the temple. Always to the temple. And when the Spirit of the Lord left the temple in the days of Ezekiel, it was an hour that was described of great mourning. For the Word of God, the voice of God, the presence of God was absent from His people because He was departing from the temple. And when they returned after exile and rebuilt the foundation of the temple, the men wept because of how glorious this was. And when 400 years went by without a word from God, which is how we see the division of the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years of an absence of the Lord's voice. After 400 years without God's word, they would probably begin to wonder, is there going to be an accomplishment of the narrative in fulfillment of all the Old Testament history? And so we have the beginning of the Christmas story exactly where any man like Theophilus, who's right in his mind, would understand that it all must begin right here in the temple. The 400 years of absence is over. How do we know that? How can we have confidence in that? Because this historian, Luke, gave confidence to his friend that a voice came from the temple. So Luke's reader would be immensely encouraged to know that the first great surprise, that when God is active in the world again, he comes back to Jerusalem and into the temple to begin to speak. That's where Christmas begins. It's absolutely consistent with the activity of the glory of God in history. And on the basis of that, the the coherence of the things that Luke had been taught actually coalesce and resonate within his soul and give him 
the sense that my faith is grounded in the way that God has always worked. It's not just random. So the first purpose or first surprise of Christmas is seen in the very place of which God works in the temple. The second surprise of Christmas is to the very people whom God would speak. The second surprise for those of us who are so enamored with the narrative of Luke's Christmas story but rarely appeal to the very first chapter is not, is not only the place in which God goes, but to the people to whom God would go and make his plans known. You see that in verses 5 through 7. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. See, many turn to Luke and the angelic annunciation to the young virgin peasant girl in Nazareth named Mary. But actually, Luke's Christmas narrative begins with the appearance to Zechariah concerning his wife, concerning his wife who was old and barren. The sign that God is on the move again after four centuries of being quiet. This would encourage Theophilus because of his understanding of the Old Testament Scriptures of, of how God would normally make himself known to people. And this might confuse us of like, man, this is a, again a really random place to begin this story of his work in humanity. The signs of God's promises working toward accomplishment in Zechariah's day would begin with an aged, barren woman. And this, too, is exactly the thing that Luke's reader, Theophilus, and any other reader in a right-minded way in the first century who's been acquainted with the Old Testament narrative and the things of Jesus, this is what they would have expected because this is how God has chosen to work. Friend, do you remember long before God announced that Abraham's wife, Sarah, a woman beyond childbearing years would give birth to a son. So Sarah gave birth to a son in her old age to Isaac. Friend, do you remember the narrative of God's activity in history when it was Rachel's womb that had been closed but then would be opened to the rescuing son named Joseph? Friend, do you remember in the days of the judges when God had been inactive in delivering his people, that he appeared in a sense to a wife who'd, who would give birth to a child named Samson. And then in distant years, when all hope appears lost, this same God, after the time of the judges, when Eli himself and his sons had compromised the priesthood, it was Hannah who had previously been incapable of bearing a child, who after a lengthy period of barrenness, would conceive. Those indicators of how God works in history in redemption through His people are a way to not only encourage us in this announcement within the temple, but to give us confidence all the way forward. So when Luke begins his gospel and he's trying to ground the reader in uh, substantial support, he hangs his weight on the way that God has always worked in the narrative until this point. And it is a surprise to us, isn't it? A surprising place to a surprising person. An older, aged, barren woman, now pregnant. And an indication that God is at work. And so, 
as it always was in the days of old. So it was in Luke's Christmas story, he announces the advent of God's return through a wrinkled but righteous woman, Elizabeth. Now, you and I often appeal to Elizabeth and Zechariah merely for their righteousness. We say, look how righteous they were. And that's certainly in the text, and it's certainly true. The text speaks to that. We often appeal to their regard and their piety, and the text obviously indicates that. But rarely do we appeal to them on the basis of her consistent position in regard to the kind of woman who conceives when God is active and on the move. Don't miss the big picture here. This is reported by a historian, Luke, in order to support Theophilus' faith. His, Theophilus, and I pray yours, his faith in Jesus through the witness of John being conceived by Elizabeth is declared credible. His belief in Jesus through the witness of John being conceived by Elizabeth is now credible. Now, strictly coming out uh, with an initial appearance to a virgin would almost be incomprehensible to be rooted and grounded in the faith. And so Luke gives us something that grounds us in the God of the past so we can have hope in Him in the future. But secondly, God is about to rescue His people. And you stand on the verge of rescue and you know that, you know that this is the case because it's Elizabeth. Long barren has conceived and shall bear a son. And this is, this is what they say is good news. And the reason that God gives for great joy is this good news. So two wonderful, great surprises in Luke's gospel. Not quite the way that we might start Advent in our own homes, but certainly in the way that Luke wrote it. But there's a third surprise in Luke's Christmas story. A surprising place to begin. A surprising person with whom he begins with. And finally, a surprising prominence that he gives to someone other than Jesus. A surprising prominence that he gives to someone other than Jesus. Isn't that interesting? You might say that the beginning of the Christmas narrative should begin with Jesus. But Luke, in order to give you confidence in God, actually grounds it in John. At least half of the first three chapters are given to a character other than Jesus. This is striking. This is surprising to us. It's given to the quantifiable uh, historical account of John the Baptist. Now, what does that mean for Theophilus? At the beginning of the, the story, this is what all of this was going towards. We need to remember that John the Baptist was the most credible witness that the gospel brings forth for the readers of the first century to make a valid entrustment of their life in Jesus. John the Baptist was the most credible witness that the gospels bring forth for the readers of the first century for you and I today, to make a valid entrustment of our lives in the person of Christ for our salvation. John is the credible witness. In other words, you believe in Jesus because of the credibility of the witness of John. It's the credibility of John that ought to make you become an initial spectator of who Christ is. Now, how is it that he's credible? Well, I like to read John Grisham novels. I don't know why I like to read John Grisham novels. They're all the same. There's a problem, and then there's a twist where people are figuring it out. And then what do you know? The, the latter third of the book is when there's another twist, and everyone is figured out. John Grisham makes his point on there's always a wronged party, and those wronged parties are being exposed by the credibility of an innocent person. They're all the same. 
the credibility of the innocent or the wronged party. Now, I don't know if you've ever sat in a courtroom where witnesses are brought up on a stand, but one thing that's necessary is for a witness to be seen as credible. And I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, what makes a witness credible? Well, in part, a jury makes a witness credible. Or in other words, people themselves determine the credibility of someone. They're going to watch this person talk, and they're going to go, I don't believe them. Or they go, I believe them. They're adding to the credibility. But the other thing that makes a witness credible is the actual character of that very witness, which is why an opposing uh, party in a trial will seek to assassinate the character of the witness because if you pull down the character of the witness, then the credibility of the witness falls. And here we are with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the most credible witness in the first century of the person of Jesus Christ. Turn to the chapter 7 of Luke. Chapter 7 of Luke. And go to verse 29. Luke chapter 7, verse 29. Luke is trying to show that the people regard this man as credible and this character of this man are deemed credible. Luke chapter 7, verses 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. John was a very credible man in regard to the people. He was a man of the people. He, you could say, held the whole of society. John was a man of the people, and he was deemed credible by the people. It was like he had his own street cred among the people. I would imagine that if you are looking to hire someone, or you're looking to be in a relationship with someone, or you're just seeking to know someone, you want to know about their credibility according to the streets, right? How do other people talk about them? How do they know them? What's he like? What's his street cred like? And John here has great street cred. But not only was he credible with the masses, he was also credible all the way through, meaning in his own heart. Look, look back at Luke 3. So go back a little bit. We were in chapter 1 and chapter 7. Now back at Luke 3 and go to, go to verse 7 of chapter 3. He had credibility because of how he treated others. Chapter 3, verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Basically, he called a spade a spade. Look at verse 8, or at least the first part of verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Now, I don't make you some enemies, but also some people might say, I don't love everything this guy's saying, but he calls it as he sees it. He as a spade is a spade. But look how he deals with politicians. Look at chapter 3, verse 19, down there on the text. But Herod, the tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the enemy, all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all. John the Baptist wasn't afraid to take on the highest politician of the land and reprove him. When I was in high school and college, I would always try to rush home from church <laughs> and watch 
Meet the Press. Wasn't I cool? I loved Meet the Press. And you remember when Meet the Press was good? It's not now, but it was good. When it was hosted by Tim Russert, who was, he was such a great host. Uh, I got to be in the same room as him one time, and I told everyone I was in the same room as Tim Russert. He was such a good host for one reason. It didn't matter if you were the president. It didn't matter if you were an important senator, a general, a businessman. It didn't matter your social rank. He was not afraid to use your own words in ways against you when he found you to be hypocritical. This show was so good because this host called a spade a spade. John wasn't afraid to take on the higher-ups, but John would also take on everybody, not just people in positions. Look at verse 11 of of chapter 3. And he answered to them, Who has two tunics? Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Everyone should be acting in a certain way, he says. Look at verse 12. There's a businessman there. Tax collectors also come to be baptized. And he said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Everyone should act in a certain way, even if you're a businessman or even if you're a woman without a tunic. And look at how he spoke to the military. Verse 14, Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation to be content with all your wages. I mean, this guy comes right at it in every strata of life, from the masses to the military, from the mother with coats to her, to, uh, in her closet to politicians. And if John said it, you would have thought in that day that it had validity because of his character and by the way that he was viewed by the people. He was the most credible person. Think of it this way. The famous historian of the first century devotes Three entire paragraphs to John the Baptist, Josephus, the famous historian of the first century, and he accredits almost nothing to Jesus. Because in the first century, before Jesus and his followers rolled onto the table, it was John the Baptist who was highly seen by outsiders. So to build up credibility for the church, it was actually being first built on the credibility of this man. Now, the third surprise of this is is not just the place, the temple, the, the people, Zechariah and uh, Elizabeth, both of which are consistent with the Old Testament. The final surprise is the prominence that Luke gives to John. And the reason, I think, is because John is the one Theophilus's faith can be strengthened by, is if Luke is saying, put your faith in John's testimony of what John will do. And this is how you and I should normally speak of the gospel. We don't just drop in with a Jesus narrative, because who, who was that guy? But we build the glorious narrative of the person of Christ in all of what God has done before him. This is why when you might share the gospel, you start at the very beginning of the God who made the heavens and the earth, and it was perfect. And then you go to the garden where Adam was and Eve was, and you go to their sin, and then you chase all that lineage and all that drama all the way up to the person of Jesus who finds his validity in your own faith because of the consistency of how God has always been operating. It is a foolish thing to pluck out him from the scriptures when it is actually the scriptures who testify to all about him. You don't just dive into the gospel. You lay the foundation first with creation, with the garden, moving to the casting out and 
On and on you go through the Old Testament chasing the, the solution to man's needs and there'd be a seed of a woman who'd crush the seed of the serpent. You might think, is it Noah as you're reading this testimony? Is it Abraham? Is it now Moses? Uh, he died. Maybe it's Joshua. Maybe Jacob. Maybe David. Maybe these prophets. Maybe these priests. And then here we have, after 400 years, John, who's awesome, where a foundation is being laid. Look at the prominence of John in chapter 3 of the book of Luke. Last thing on John, look at, look at what happens. Finally, you think you've gotten rid of John in the chapter. Jesus comes along in chapter 2. He's He's been born. The shepherd's announcement has come. The presentation at the temple has arrived. He's returned to Nazareth. Jesus has. Now he's turned 12 years old. He's in the temple. And we're waiting for all these things to happen. In chapter 3, we're waiting for Jesus to commence his ministry. And think of what it'd be like to read this for the first time. Chapter 3, all this narrative has shifted from John to Jesus. This is the way that you and I read this. But look in chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Okay, a big history marker. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, more markers, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, okay, now a place, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region, during, in verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to Jesus. No, it doesn't say that, does it? After all of this and all of that, and in this very important place, so that you can have validity in your own faith, it says the Word of God came to John. The Word of God came to John, and such is the prominence of him in the Gospels. And so you might think, this is a strange beginning sermon on an Advent series. What are we to take from this? you got to remember that John is the one who bore ultimate credible witness concerning this Christmas narrative. And the glorious thing about what John shows us is that a glorious, awesome, captivated man of the streets, not afraid of anyone, but held as their beloved, would do what with his life? Verse 16 of chapter 1, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Even there in John's witness, Luke sets up our expectation for Jesus by being rooted in coming out of a ministry of the Old Testament narrative in the ministry of Elijah in the promise of Isaiah, and he's equating this Elijah to John the Baptist. So his belief that Jesus is credible rests that even the ministry of John is rooted in the line of all the things that were accomplished by God. To the point where when you get to chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, where people were asking themselves and questioning if John was himself the Christ, you can see the full impact of John's testimony. Turn back to chapter 3. I know we're going back and forth. I hope there's a rhythm to it. Back and forth. Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. You can see the full impact of John's witness here. In the place of John in the ministry of Jesus, the reason why it's rooted in the Old Testament, the reasons why it's announced to these people in this contemporary time, and the reason why it should be held by you even today is by they were thinking 
And they were wondering, is John the man? As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. He tells you about John in chapter 1. He tells you about Jesus in chapter 2. And then the expectation of the people concerning who is the Christ is announced in chapter 3. Surely it's John because he's so great, he's so awesome, he's so legendary. But look at verse 16. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The witness of John, as great as he was, the announcement from his own words to these people is, I'm not even close to the one who is coming. I'm not him. The one that I'm now going to give way toward I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Friend, think of that. I wonder what the Gospel of Luke would have read like in the first century without the narrative of John. I wonder how compelling the story would have been without an understanding that God is consistent, that God has returned to his place, that he's come to rescue his people, that he's done it just the way he's always done it, but even fuller now. The, the glorious and beautiful gift that you and, I, that you and I have in having four different Gospels as we can see the same Christ, but through the Holy Spirit-inspired attention of what those offers were meaning to convey and what, what the inspired Word of God through Luke, through this friend and for you today, is in part so that when you look at the Christ of the Gospel of Luke, is that so you can look at that Christ with absolute content or absolute confidence. That God has not randomly done something to save you, but God has been consistent in all of his ways to do exactly what he's wanted to do from before all time. So let me bring this home. I have no idea what many of you go through on a regular basis. I have no idea about the satanic tug on your soul keeping you away from a constant worship of God. I have no idea the suffering you might regularly endure or the bitterness you try to Push to the side. I don't even know the depth of doubt that some of you have about the very person of Jesus. And I know that there are some of you here today who actually wonder if you do take up and if you do follow Jesus that this book points you to, is he the real deal? By what confidence can I worship the Lord? Is he, God the Son, the one who was sent to save me? I don't know anything about those things in your life, but... I do know the certainty with which you can meet those realities. In the original time of the text, and in the appointed time for you today, one of the greatest, strongest reasons for coming to Christ, holding on to Christ, lifting up Christ even at Christmas, is the coherence of the way God has worked in all time. And through the witness and credibility of his appointed ways. My friend, God fulfills his word. 
That's the emphasis of this text. You see in how the text is even arranged. This is arranged like last week. I can't believe this happened. It's arranged like a chiasm. That The top matches the bottom, and then the second point matches the seventh point. And on and on. It goes to the main emphasis. What is the emphasis of this text? That one is going to come who will point all those people to the one whom they should worship. And he's not just some blabbering man from the wilderness. My friend, God fulfills his word to the point where you and I should react to it by believing God's word. So here's the one application for all of us is to see this, the gravity, the majesty, the glory, the surprise of the Christmas beginning is to live out with your whole life the call of John's purpose revealed to us in the middle. Friend, the application for us is to turn to the Lord this day, the one who keeps his promises, the one who provides for his children, the one who brings everything in order for the presentation of a son. Let's pray.